For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or a sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Oops, wrong glass. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, uh, pity on them, where'd it go? Uh, yeah, oh, here pity on them. Uh, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Thank you. Uh, The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. This is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. So uh, last week we took a break from talking about senses and such and uh, love and connection to talk about the Antichrist. Uh, This week we're back to senses and for Beth, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about murder. So there's some podcastable material here. Uh, but funnily enough, to talk about the complete range of senses in the context of the ancient Near Middle East, you couldn't start or you couldn't finish by just talking about ears and eyes and so on. You would have had to talk about the heart. And so we'll get more to why the heart is a sense organ, maybe some ancient Middle Eastern cardiology in, in a little bit. <laughs> this letter to a Johannine community, as we've been talking about, uh, is at least in part about a messy fight between people who kind of got the incarnation like we do, um, so I guess as much as anyone can fully get the incarnation, uh, folks who kind of thought about the incarnation of, of, of Jesus Christ as being a God present to us in the flesh, paradoxically uh, finite and infinite, yada, yada, yada. And those who uh, denied that God was present in flesh or even in the material world. And as we've been talking about now for, I don't know, maybe uh, two weeks, there's all kinds of implications for denying that stuff, uh, for denying the idea that God is present in flesh. It's not just a theological mistake, which it is, but it's a mistake that causes you to, for example, undervalue community, overlook suffering, and paradoxically, for my second Beth reference, uh, to put God in a box that says that God cannot exist in the material and physical world, that that is the limit of God's power. So in order to kind of work that out, we saw this last week. In in this letter, the basic distinction is between the children of God and the children of the devil. And remember last week, we kind of went through the different kind of characteristics of the the children as represented in that story, which is really a distinction between those who understand the character of love, who understand the way that love informs the Christian life, and those who have unintentionally embraced hatred and death. Turns out, that love reveals who God is, and God is love, and to see that mutual relationship changes everything. So uh, it also helps, us, uh, incidentally, to see how the children of God and the children of the devil are different. So the text for today starts out simply, 
uh, verse 11, for this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Now, you all remember and, and will recall, this is a common phrase in the letter. We've heard this, I think, three times already, the message that you have heard from the beginning. And it's also kind of a, I don't know, literary device. It usually marks the introduction of a new kind of major argument or point. So here we go on some uh, new material. The message, as we've talked about, that you have heard from the beginning is not just one that's been heard by the Christian community, but as you all recall, uh, when folks, especially in that kind of Johannian tradition, talk about it, it's like the logos, the word, the message that is echoed throughout all of creation. And I don't know, Christ the logos has imprinted on each one of us beauty and truth and order and, and love and all those things. And, you know, the beautiful thing about the Christian version of that is that those four aren't discrete. Those four are inseparable. But God's beauty is part of God's ordering of the world, is part of the God, kind of truth that is God, is part of God's love for the world. And our goal is to respond to that kind of revelation of the nature of the universe and the, the very character of God by shaping ourselves in that image, becoming ever more fully children of God. So, uh, you know, speaking of children of God and the devil, I'm not sure that the main point of this distinction is to be like, okay, who's on devil team, who's on God team? But it's a cue that there's this, the letter's using this really powerful literary illusion that's, that's kind of woven through the whole rest of this text. And there's even some kind of inklings of it in the past text we look at. It was a, a really powerful kind of metaphor, one that the crowd knew well, that would have been for them kind of an argument essentially about the psychology of love and hatred. So the, the kids, children of God, children of the devil, series of stories about kind of human psychology and how we think about love and how we think about hatred. And I really got kind of geeked out on the little mystery here uh, because in the text that we're going to deal with from here on out, there are all these kind of strange phrases and weird language choices and kind of funny syntax sprinkled throughout this section. And so that's usually a cue that it's referring to, to something else. So it starts here in verse 12. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother, why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now, Cain versus Christ is kind of going to be the implicit contrast through this whole thing. And I don't know how else to say it. This is kind of a blunt introduction of Cain. It's like weird for two reasons. The first reason is it's the only reference in the Old Testament that's present in 1 John. So it should really stand out, right? Like the Gospel of John... Uh, the other letters from John have more, at least, kind of implicit references to the Old Testament. This is the only one uh, in, in 1 John is this reference to Cain. And second, you know, usually, like, when the Gospel of John or, like, when Paul, for example, introduces a concept from the Old Testament, they take a little bit of time and, like, fill it out and give it some context, kind of explain what they're doing with it, but, but not here. Like, for example, Abel isn't even mentioned, right? Just says, don't be like Cain. And the word that you're, what, is a, what did Cain do to Abel by your translation, anybody? Was it murder or kill? Murder. Murder, okay. So the word that's translated as murdered here is also kind of weird. So it's not just killed, like, or even the normal word for murder. The word there is sfadzo, which means to slay. But in the Bible, it's almost always associated with ritual slaughter or sacrifice. So... Besides the use here, it's only used in Revelation. So, like, uh, the, it's used for the lamb who was slain before time. It's used for the saints who were slain. It's like a very specific kind of ritual, sacrificial sense of slain. 
So you put that stuff together and there's a good chance that the phrase, do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother, is borrowed from some other text that folks in the audience would have known well. Like, it's like uh, if I were to sprinkle into a sermon reference uh, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It kind of brings up this other set of stories. And we do know that there are lots of stories in the Jewish and early Christian communities that essentially it's like, I don't know, it's like left behind for them. It kind of filled in the background uh, of, the, of the book. And so there's a bunch of these that um, talked about Adam and Eve and the kind of history that goes out from Adam and Eve. And the folks uh, in the audience would have already basically had a set opinion from those stories on why exactly it was that Cain sfazoed Abel. So the Genesis account is pretty crisp, to say the least. It's also somewhat brief. Genesis 4, 3 through 8. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soils an offering to the Lord. Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord says to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. As we think about it, the story usually goes something like this. Adam and Eve kids want to bring a sacrifice. You know, Cain brings potatoes. Abel brings juicy lambs. God likes Abel's offering, not Cain's. And so Cain gets mad. But it's also important to note in the story that it's not immediately jumping to Cain killing. God pulls Cain aside, essentially, and is like, why are you mad? Let's just offer a good sacrifice. And so Abel goes, or Cain goes out and kills him. But there was this other idea that was floating around in the culture, an idea that folks knew well. They'd likely heard it around the fire. For example, there's a set of stories called by modern-day Bible folks, The Greek Lives of Adam and Eve. And they were like oral and written version of Left Behind, like I said, for the Jewish and Christian communities at the time. And they fill in lots of details about the Cain and Abel story. And, you know, to me, that's a really interesting historical fact. But more importantly, it's one that makes a big difference in how you interpret this passage. In these stories, Cain is usually not clearly Adam's son. Most of these stories have some speculation that, uh, Revelation number one, Cain is the son of the devil. And he's not just jealous of Abel. Like in these stories, Cain is trying to stick it to God. So in the Genesis account, God basically pulls Cain aside, says, his kids meme these days, why are you mad? And if, the sac- if you sacrifice what is right, we're all good. Get a hold of yourself and your sin. But in these stories about Adam and Eve at the time, Cain basically turns Abel into like the most disgustingly perverse sacrifice to God. So God pulls him inside and says, look, if you care, make a good sacrifice and we'll be fine. And uh, basically in these stories, Cain's like, all right, God, I'll show you a good sacrifice. And then he kills Abel. And in the story, he like delight, he doesn't just kill him, he like delights in his pain. And some of these stories even had Cain drinking Abel's blood like it was a sacrifice to himself. Sfadzo is a weird word to put in there, but it was a word that was in all these stories, and it was the word that was showed at the, used at the time to show that Cain didn't, not only didn't want to make a righteous sacrifice to God, but Cain wants to like totally reverse the order that God intends from the world. Cain is the kind of embodiment of how humans become and begin to hate. There's even a progression in all these stories that goes something like increasing evil. I mean, first Cain is negligent. And sacrificing, he's got potatoes instead of lambs, although add them together, and that's a good meal. 
Uh, and then, not only is he negligent and sacrificing, but he's kind of rebellious against God who calls him out, out of love. And then finally, uh, his rebelliousness and his kind of elevation of himself and his jealousy and his pride become so much that not only does he kill his brother, but he he becomes like a murderous semi-cannibal. That's the thing that the audience would have heard in this story or might have thought when it said, don't be like Cain. Cain was like a moral exemplar for them about how evil grows in our hearts and how small sins begin to escalate into bigger sins and what it means kind of to be as he literally was in these stories, the kind of child of the, of the devil. And it demonstrates in a way that is clearer than the text alone or the text is informed by Genesis that Cain is quite literally here as understood by the audience, the opposite of, or dare we say, the Antichrist. Christ is a martyr, a self-sacrificing grace giver who as the son of, uh, of, of a loving God demonstrates God's favor towards us, We even drink his figurative blood to be made whole, to move from death into life. And not to point out the obvious, because you see where I'm going here, but Cain is not a martyr. He's a murderous cannibal, a self-serving taker, who as a potential son of the devil demonstrates man's hatred towards man and towards the order of love. He drank his brother's literal blood in killing him in these stories, moving him from life to death. Cain is antichrist, and the moral of the story is that once you disconnect from love, the path ends not only at self-worship, but at violence and hatred. That's what's so morally powerful about this story. It demonstrates not only what it means to be a child of God and a child of the devil, but it demonstrates the exact same progression that we've been seeing in 1 John. The point of the narrative has been to say what? Once you see and connect with the beauty and the, of the vision of Christ, you will be transformed. But there's an antichrist version of that too, that these stories embodied in Cain. Once you kind of go down the path of the devil, you're increasing darkness, you increasingly value yourself, you are increasingly prideful, you're increasingly hateful, you're increasingly violent, etc., etc. Cain is antichrist, and the moral of the story is once you disconnect from love, the path ends not only at self-worship, but at violence and hatred and cannibalism. In the Greek lives of Adam and Eve, this is a beautiful detail, obviously not scripture, but I, I love it as a story detail. In the Greek lives of Adam and Eve, Abel's body and Adam's body are brought back to Eden. And they're buried together in Eden with the promise of God raising them at the resurrection. Whereas these these stories typically end, Cain is cast out and dies a lonely and likely permanent death. In other words, Abel passes from death to life in the resurrection. Cain passes from life to death, which makes sense out of some other stuff that's uh, tough to figure out otherwise. Christ is the literal incarnate savior, the type and frame for salvation embodied Cain is the embodiment of the emptiness of hatred, of the emptiness of scorn, of the emptiness of pride, of the emptiness of self-worship. He is anti-Christ in every sense, not only the, you know, not the literal anti-Christ, although maybe he's one of those two, but he is like the opposite type or form that shows us that just as certain as the path of love leads to connection, leads to rightness, leads to wholeness, leads to order, the path of evil and self-worship culminate in hate and destruction. That's why verse 13 says, Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in them. This is referring to that kind of larger moral story that's represented 
in those stories about Cain and Abel that's talking about how just as good grows in us via, uh, through love in the person of Jesus Christ and in its embodiment and community, evil tends to grow in its own kind of inevitable way too. We have passed in the hat tip to the, those stories like Abel from death into life, into resurrection, the world will hate us. The literal Greek there is like, don't be amazed by the fact that the world hates you because without Christ, who is love, the world will inevitably tend towards hatred. And the literal word for the, the, the word here for murder is not sfadzo, okay? It's not, they've even changed the weird murder words. The murder words here for 13 and 15 are, are you ready? Anthropoktonos. It's only used twice in the Bible, once in John, and then once here in 1 John. And it literally means man killer, but in most instances in that culture, guess what it would have meant? Man eater. Like a cannibal, like someone who would consume someone else's person or blood for their own sake. Against that backdrop, we can read verse 16 in a new light. Hatred is not only the cause of violence, but more to the point, it induces us to consume other people for our own good. It's like, to my mind, it's one of the best definitions of evil that's possible, that we take others and we make them sacrifices to ourselves, that we take others and we use them for the sake of whatever we can get out of them for us. We do not see the dignity and image of God or of Christ in another, but we see them as something that we consume for our own selfish purposes. But Christ shows us another and a better way that we see the beauty and dignity and presence of his face in other people. And as a result, we sacrifice out of love. 16 says, this is, and this is a powerful statement. This is how we know what love is. That Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Not, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. By this we have known love. That is beautiful. Not just because we affirm conceptually that God is love, though God is. Nor because it creates goods for us, though it does to affirm love and growing community and, and writing us with God. But simply because we observe in Jesus Christ true agape. True giving up of one's own interest for the good of others, And that is a message that stand, extends beyond the ethics of live and let die. That's a message that extends beyond whether or not you should kill and or eat your brother. It extends to even the small choices we make about, like, I don't know, money. Any, any instance where we might think about how we weigh our good against the good of others. And for the Christian, for the person who's being transformed, in any instance where that trade-off is between us and others, we ought to lean into the idea that the good of the other is what matters there because that's the definition of love. 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother, we'll read down to 21, or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love words or speech but in actions and truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence for God before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. All right, some ancient Near Eastern slash Middle Eastern cardiology to wrap us up. The phrase in 17, has no pity on them, is a gutless translation. I mean that literally. Like, it's not wrong, but the Greek phrase is essentially he sh- uh, d- it, and shuts their bowels to them. <laughs> it's the like you know y'all have heard a like you know from the depths of God's bowels is a phrase that sometimes is used in in kind of older versions of the Bible or uh, people in the ancient world who've talked about this before talked about like things coming from deep within their bowels. For for this culture, the heart 
was the coordinating center for thought, emotion, and feeling. It was a sense organ in its own right. And that's how they explained the fact that the heart was literally connected to everything else in their body. And like, there are a couple of people at the time that got it right. Like Galen got this right. Galen thought that the brain kind of ran the show, but almost everyone in the culture thought that the heart ran the show. And in fact, they thought the brain was simply a mechanism for cooling down the heart, which is why they speculated it had so many blood vessels and why we lose heat from our heads. But you can see why they did it. Because when you feel animated or excited or amped up, your heart rate goes up. And when you feel kind of mellowed out, your heart rate goes down. So as they thought about it, the heart was integrating the things that came from your eyes, the things that came from your ears, and the things that came from your bowels into your psyche, and it was helping you to kind of connect with, understand, and move through your world. And the beautiful thing about it is, you know, you can see why it makes a lot of sense. You can get kind of touching with the eyes. We talked about that in hearing, but like when you really, really feel nervous or feel like something hits you in a way that you didn't expect, what do you say? It was like a gut punch. Everybody get that little feeling like down in the middle of you when something is, and for them, that was the stuff coming up from your bowels, which were essentially the place where you were empathetically connected to other, and, this, and then it would move up to your heart, and your heart would connect all these things and kind of organize you and orient you where to go. And the thing that uh, the old stories about Cain and Abel said, just like the uh, story here in 17, has no pity on them. They would say that the main sin that began Cain's path towards sin is that he cut off his bowels from Abel. They decided that whatever Abel felt or whatever Abel meant or whatever Abel wanted did not matter to him. And so he shut down his bowels, which in turn shuts off your heart to the other person. It gives a whole new meaning to the idea that uh, the way to a person's heart is through their stomach, right? It's still true, by the way, but we are used to this kind of metaphorical use of heart, like the hardening of hearts. But for them, the connection was way more literal, like to harden your heart, to not let your heart condemn you was literally to shut yourself off to pain and feelings and connections with other people. Like to, to shut your heart was to make it closed and rageful and internally sealed in so that you weren't receiving information from other people or the world, that you were kind of banging everything around in your heart and coming to conclusions that would gradually add to your rage. So the idea of an open heart or a hard heart or a closed heart for them was not just a metaphor. That was really how human beings understood and connected to other human beings. And the point in the story of Cain and Abel, just as the point in the story here, is that as you shut off that heart to other people, as you made it so that they did not affect you and you did not affect, or you were not affected by them, as you insulated yourself from community, as you did not connect to other people, you would become more closed-hearted, you would become more hateful, and you'd go down the path of Cain. That's why in 21, dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep in commands and do what pleases him. If we are not condemned by our hearts, but they are open to and connected with the person of God, we will keep his commands and will do what pleases him. And that's why in the end, touching God, which is the kind of theme of the sermon series so far, I think changes everything invariably when we touch God with our eyes, when we hear the word of God and it implants in us, when we (laughs) open our bowels to the world so that we can be affected by the emotional experiences of other people and connect with them, then we have a heart which is open to and receptive of and building connections with other people. That's it. That is what open heart 
ultimately means for them and not to lean in too hard to the open your bowels metaphor. But the point of all this is that if we are open to moving and being moved by Jesus Christ and open to moving and being moved by Christ's presence and other people, then I do believe that love will not only triumph, but that it changes us. It unites us together. And it does so in a way that's about so much more than our minds, but it unites our hearts, our bodies, our community together in a way that is, uh, you know, a little foretaste of heaven to come and the end in the telos of the universe. That's why this beautiful section ends with what? This is his command. To believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them, connected together. And this is how we know that he lives in us, by the spirit that he has given us. Amen. Questions talk.